Well, please turn with me uh, back to the book of 2 Samuel this evening. And we're turning to 2 Samuel chapter 23. And this is on page 276. And we're going to pick up our reading at verse 8 this evening. We have been working through uh, the book of Samuel in our evenings together. And we're coming to the closing chapters of uh, 2 Samuel. And this evening we want to especially look at uh, this uh, 23rd chapter. But we'll be making reference back to chapter 21 as well. 2 Samuel chapter 23 and beginning our reading at verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb Beshepeth, a Tekamanite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, a son of Ahohi. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi the Harahite. The Philistines gathered together at Lahi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took a stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the chief, uh, three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Raphaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to the Lord uh, to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeriah, was chief of the thirty. And he wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander. But he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man, of Kabzil, a doer of great deeds, he struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and won a name beside the three mighty men. 
He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. Shammah of Harad. Elika of Harad. Helez, the Paltite. Ira, the son of Ikesh of Tekoa. Abiezer of Anathoth. Mebune, uh, the Hushathite. Zalman, the Ahite. Maharai of Natoafa, Heleb, the son of Bena, of Natofa, Ite, the son of Ribai, of Gibeah, of the people of Benjamin, Benea, of uh, Parathon, Hidei, of the brooks of Geash, uh, Abi Alban, uh, the Arbathite, Asmaheth, of Bahuram, Eliaba, the Shalbanite, the sons of Jashan, Jonathan, Shammah, the Harahite, Ahiam, the son of Sharar, the Harahite, uh, Eliphalite, the son of Ahashabai, of Mecca, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, of Gilo, Hezro, of Carmel, Parai, the Arbite, Igal, the son of Nathan, of Zobah, Bani, the Gid- uh, Gadite, Zelek, the Ammonite, Naharai of Beeroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zariah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gareb, the Ithrite, Uriah, the Hittite, 37 in all. Well, lists uh, are not the most exciting thing. And to read lists like that are an intimidating thing as well. And maybe there's a reason why we don't always like to read lists uh, when we find them. Uh, But lists in the Bible are quite common. Uh, We see them all over the place. And those lists are important because they remind us of the historicity of the Bible. That we are dealing with real people in real space and time. But these lists in the Bible... Uh, that we might be tempted to just skim over or to pass over are also important because they call attention to something. They're remembered. That these people who lived a long time ago, their deeds, which may or may not be remembered by men, are remembered and noted by the Lord. And this evening, as we are turning to Second Samuel, we are looking at one of these lists. We're actually looking at two of these lists because we want to see how these people are remembered by the Lord. They are honored by the Lord for their service in David's kingdom. But as we look at these lists, it's not simply to honor these men who fought for David, but it also starts to shed light on why they were fighting for David and the kind of king they were fighting for. And so this evening, we want to look at these lists, hopefully with that in mind, how it shows us something of how the Lord honors his people, but also how the people honor their Lord through their service. We mentioned last time, you remember that we said these final chapters of the book of Samuel are really arranged in an intentional way, that they are really trying to give something of an assessment of David's kingdom. It is looked at the rise of David's kingdom. It's looked at the weaknesses in David's reign. 
But what are we to take away from this whole understanding of the history of David as king? And these closing chapters are really giving us something of a a perspective. That in these last chapters, we are given something of the problems that were faced in David's kingdom. The wrath of God coming upon the land because of Saul's blood guilt in trying to destroy the Gibeonites. God's wrath coming upon Israel because of David's census. And in both of these occasions, we see how David seeks to remove uh, God's wrath, how he seeks to respond in that situation. But these chapters also give us something of a, a, a survey of those who, who served in David's kingdom, to give us something of a perspective of the, the glory of David's kingdom. These people who were willing to not only support David to become king, but these men who stayed with David even when others rejected him. These loyalists who gave their very lives to David. And why was that? And so this evening we want to look at many of these names. Some of them are known to us. Some of them we have no idea who they are. But they are all being remembered uh, for their service. And as we come to look at this ch- these chapters this evening, we want to see that because uh, the Lord's anointed king is worthy of our uh, uh, service, our loyalty, then we are uh, to serve him gladly. The Lord had promised in Samuel that it would be by the hand of David that he would conquer Israel's enemies, that it would be by the hand of David that the Philistines would be defeated. And as we've traced through the book of Samuel, we see that that promise actually finds its fulfillment in David. That in the early chapters, it tells us that David went and he would defeat the Philistines. We see it, for instance, in chapter 5. But in chapter 8, it tells us that after this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. David fulfilled the promise of Scripture. Where Saul failed, David succeeded. David defeated Israel's enemies. And yet, the story isn't that simple. Because while David defeated the Philistines, that battle was an ongoing struggle. If you look in chapter 21, you'll notice that four times there, it mentions the dynamic of David's reign. Four times it mentions that there was war again with the Philistines. It wasn't as though the war with the Philistines and Goliath ended everything. The war with Goliath was the breaking of the Philistine power. But that battle would continue. Uh, It would be one that continued on again and again. You notice there in chapter 21, it says in verse uh, uh, 15, there was war again between the Philistines and Israel. In verse 18, after this, there was war again with the Philistines. In verse 20, there was war again at Gath. Verse 21 uh, 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 highlights it uh, again. So there's this ongoing struggle that is taking place throughout David's reign. Yes, he's defeated the Philistines, but the Philistines are always there. They haven't actually retreated forever but they remain on the outskirts waiting for an opportunity. And so there is a constant threat that characterizes David's kingdom. There is a constant struggle about David's kingdom. And what that is highlighting to us is that there's a dynamic 
to God's promises. God promised David that he would defeat his enemies, that God would give him uh, victory and success over the Philistines. And he did. He subdued the Philistines. And yet, at the same time, God's promise went beyond that. God promised David in chapter 7, you remember the promise to David was is that he would give him rest from all his enemies. Not just success, but rest. That his enemies would no longer disturb him. And so the promises of God, while they are being fulfilled in David's reign, also are extending beyond David's reign. That God had something greater in store than even what was being fulfilled in David's own lifetime. But as we turn to this chapter here, you notice that there is these uh, wars that are uh, still going on. And it, uh, in these accounts, we are told why it is that David eventually stops going out into battle. In one of those occasions, it tells us that David grew weary. And one of the giants of the Philistines was about to kill David. He was in a weak position. But Abishai came to his rescue and uh, slayed the giant. So David was at risk of dying. And afterwards, we're told that the men of Israel made David swear never to go out into battle again. Why? Because otherwise we risk quenching or extinguishing the light of Israel. What were they saying? They're saying, David, you're not just anyone. You're our king. The king is essential to our prosperity. We can't afford to lose our king. You're essential. As light is essential for illuminating a room, to be able to see everything around you. So David is that essential for them to live. The book of Samuel used the same language. You remember at the beginning. You remember how the book of Samuel begins with the story of the boy Samuel. Samuel was in the house of God. And we're told that while he was in the house of God, God came to him at night. And it tells us that at that time that the, the lamp of God had not yet gone out in Israel. That in the house of God, in the tabernacle, there was a lamp that would be lit from the nighttime to the morning. And so God came to Samuel at night. But you remember that that was not just talking about the physical darkness. It wasn't just talking about the physical light. It was actually a reflection about what was going on in Israel. Because it went on to say that the word of God was rare in those days. In other words, there was a darkness creeping in in Israel. There was a spiritual low that characterized Israel. Because the, the light of God's truth was not prevailing in the lives of many. The word of God was rare because the leaders were corrupt. And it's in that context that Samuel emerged. Things were looking dark, but it said the lamp hadn't gone out yet. Not all hope was gone. But now here are these men saying to David, you can't go out into battle because if you die, it would mean the removal of all of that lamp. It would extinguish our hope. Our hope is in our king and in our king reflecting the glory of God. 
our king leading us in righteousness. The king is meant to direct us in the way of God. And so they're saying, we can't lose you. And so here we're, we're seeing something of their, why it is that these people are fighting for David. It's not just because he's anyone. It's because he's the Lord's chosen to lead them in God's path. He is the one who is to reveal to them God's ways. He is the one to, to bring them in the uh, way of God's blessing. But these opening verses also tell us uh, something else. Uh, we mentioned how it says there was war uh, four times in these verses, but we're also being directed to look at these four characters who fought these giants of the Philistines. We said earlier when David fought with Goliath, it was like breaking the power of the Philistines. Suddenly they realized that they weren't overcoming uh, the Israelites, but a champion had emerged in Israel who broke their power. You think of a tree and a branch can be broken off that tree. But once a branch has been broken, it can be further chopped up. It can be further broken once its power has been severed. And that's what we see here in David's men. There is, there is a, a parallel happening that the works that David did are being carried on by his men as well. Just as David slayed the giant, so we are given these others who fought with the giants of the Philistines and slayed them as well. So you see there even the parallel being accented at the end of the chapter. It tells us one of the giants even taunted Israel just as Goliath did. He mocked the God of Israel. And we're told that again, one of David's men was able uh, to defeat him. And so in all of these ways, uh, we're seeing the accomplishments of David's men. But in chapter 23, uh, we're given a second list as it's trying to accent for us uh, both the accomplishments of David's men and of their affection uh, for David as well. And we want to think about those uh, two ideas this evening. Uh, first, we see their accomplishments. In chapter 23 at verse 8, uh, we are told of the three and of the thirty. The three are those who were honored uh, particularly for their accomplishments that they had done. And what we notice in these verses here is, is they're, they're, being, they're being singled out for their, their fighting against Israel's enemies. We're being reminded that these are violent times and that their, their glory was being in overcoming the violence of their enemies. That they were people who defeated those who sought to destroy Israel. And so we are being directed to look at how they fought physically with their enemies. But we know as scripture teaches that the kingdom of God is one of peace and righteousness and joy. That the kingdom of God is not one that advances by the sword. It is one that is successful as it transforms people by the truth that it is ultimately about bringing down lies and establishing God's truth in their hearts. But what we see here is an analogy of those who are singled out for their willingness to fight uh, and to struggle against the enemies of God's kingdom. The first three that are honored are Joshab, Besheth, Eleazar, and Shammah. One is noted for striking down 800. One is noted for fighting until his sword clung to his hand. 
and another is noted uh, for taking his stand uh, in the field uh, to preserve the lentils that were going to be stolen by the Philistines. Each of these men uh, is remembered for their their resistance or for their willingness to take a stand uh, to defend uh, God's people. But in each of these cases, we see that the Lord ultimately caused these men to have their success. It was the Lord who gave them victory. And so they become renowned and celebrated as the three. But there were other men that fought alongside David, and these men are known as the 30. Amongst them were people like Abishai and Benaiah. Abishai, you remember, was Joab's brother. But more than that, he was the one who saved David when the Philistine was going to kill him. He's been mentioned many times. He was one of David's commanders, along with Benaiah, uh, but he was someone who was singled out uh, for striking down uh, 300 with a spear. Benaiah is also uh, a commander over David's army, and he is, again, likened to David. He strikes down a lion like David did, and he strikes down uh, perhaps not a handsome man, but a man of impressive stature. Uh, someone of great stature uh, is uh, uh, who he defeated. Again, an echo of David's works. So in all of these cases, you're seeing these, these mighty men who are actually following in the steps of their king. That they were mighty because their king was mighty. And they accomplished great deeds because they followed uh, after David. So what should we take away from all of these lists? One is that recognition of the struggle that continued to characterize David's kingdom. He did defeat the Philistines, but there was still warfare going on. And while he was successful and victorious, and the people of Israel should celebrate that their enemies were defeated, Ultimately, as they look at these lists, they are reminded that we were promised something more than this. We were promised that our enemies would no longer disturb us, that there would be peace. And so as we look at these lists, we're also being reminded of that anticipation of when a greater David would come who would establish peace himself. When uh, the Lord Jesus would come, uh, and not only succeed in God's work, but draw the nations uh, into the kingdom as well. So uh, uh, we see that there's a struggle that continues to characterize David's kingdom. And there's that analogy even with the life of a believer today. Those who come into God's kingdom, those who believe that Jesus is Lord and King, still have a struggle as they live in that kingdom that there is still a struggle against sin itself. That's why Paul says we must put on the whole armor of God, why we must uh, destroy every argument that is uh, set up against uh, the knowledge of God, that we are to establish the truth. Uh, there is uh, a real battle in the mind and in the souls of people. And so uh, there is an analogy that we can see here. Uh, between the struggle that existed in David's kingdom and the spiritual struggle against sin and the forces of evil, even uh, for those who follow Christ. But there's another thing that we can take from these lists, and it's that link between courage and godliness. 
Matthew Henry, the famous commentator, makes a helpful point here. He sees the connection between religion and courage. These men are marked by courage, that they stood with David even when others fled, that they fought for David when others wouldn't. Their courage, though, comes from the piety of David. David's faith in God led him to do great things and bold things for the Lord. But David's courage and his faith also had a spreading influence that his men were willing to follow in his steps. And so they were willing to do great things because their king did great things. And again, you see this, you see this in the New Testament, don't you? You remember after Jesus rose again from the dead, you remember how Peter and John are preaching that Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected, that Peter is preaching that there is no other savior given amongst men. And that when the religious authorities heard Peter and John preaching these things, it says in Acts chapter 4, they saw the boldness or the courage of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, and they were astonished, and they recognized they had been with Jesus. What's the connection? Their boldness, their courage was flowing out from their understanding of the courage of their king. They're living, following in the steps of their king. What their king has done, they are now willing to follow him in those steps. And so as you think about these lists that are no doubt to uh, encourage the people of Israel, the people of God to say, look at how these people stood and fought for their kingdom and fought for their people. The point is, is to realize what led them to do these things. It's because they were following their king and because their king was worthy of it. And if these men were willing to stand and to fight for David, a mortal man who was a sinner, how much more should we be people who want to stand for our king who is infinitely greater? and more worthy of our devotion. And so here we see something of the accomplishments of these men. They were violent men. They lived in violent times. They defended David's kingdom. They were willing to risk their lives. And for that, they are remembered and celebrated in Israel's history. But as well, we not only see their accomplishments and the many that are mentioned here, some of them by their accomplishments, some of them simply by name. Some of them we know and some of them we don't know. You recognize there Uriah the Hittite was one of them, the man that David killed. He was a loyal supporter of David, even when his king wasn't a supporter of him. These men served their king uh, and they stood uh, firm uh, to the end. But we also see something in these verses about the affection of these men for David. There in chapter 23, if you look at verse uh, 13, It tells us something about the 30 and three of those 30 chief men. It says uh, in those verses that there was a time when David was hiding in the cave of Adullam, when a band of the Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me the water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. 
In a moment of exasperation and desperation, David expressed his longing uh, for water from Bethlehem, from his hometown, uh, wishing for better days, wishing for the water that would bring and remind him that things aren't what they are now, that there would be no problem with the Philistines. But when his men hear these words, his will is their command. They are willing to go and to do what their king desires. And so uh, they went to get this water from Bethlehem. And it would have been remarkable if it said, and they managed to slip into Bethlehem and to sneak out with the water. But it doesn't say that. It actually says that these men forced themselves into Bethlehem. That the language that it is using there is one of a forceful entry. These men went bravely into Bethlehem, seeking to overcome any opposition to get that water, and then came back to David. Anywhere this language is used, it is a language of a violent or a forceful entry. And so they brought the water to David. But notice in verse 16, it says that when they brought the water to David, uh, he would not drink of it, but he poured it out. That has a great risk of being misunderstood and of being greatly offensive to those men. They risk their lives to get that water, and David dumps it out. But David doesn't just dump it out. He explains to them why he's dumping it out. He responds by saying, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? In other words, David was saying, was it really worth it? Was it really worth risking these men's lives just so that I could drink water? Was it really worth these men giving up their lives, possibly, just so that I could be comforted, just so that I could have my pleasures, my comforts indulged? And David here sees the water to represent the very blood of these men, their very lives. And so in a scene that actually appears to be strange, it actually becomes one of David's finest moments. Because when David pours out the water, he's showing the kind of king that he is. He's not the kind of king that is bent on taking like Saul. You remember Saul wanted to take many things unto himself. That was the danger about kings. They will seek to serve themselves. The warning of Samuel. But David here is saying, I cherish these men's lives too much to take this water. It's too costly. This water could have cost them their lives. And so David won't take it because he prioritizes something more than his own comforts, his men. And so David shows something of the kind of king that he is. And what in, in that you see an insight as to why these men served him. Why were these men supporters of David when, before he became a king? Why were these men supporters of David while he was being rejected as a king? 
Well, you could say it's because God instilled it in their heart. That's true. But why were they still loyal to David? What caused them to still hold on to David? It's because they saw something in David. It's because his character drew them. And they were willing to go into harm's way in order to care for their king. It's because they love their king. And so when David is pouring out this water here, he is telling them, I cherish your lives more than my own comfort. And you notice it doesn't say that he just poured out the water on the ground and dumped it. It says, no, he poured it out to the Lord. Such devotion belongs to the Lord. That there is a degree of devotion that is dangerous to be given to men. That ultimately it is to the Lord that we are to give our lives. And so David is actually directing his men here by way of example. That what you are to give, you are to give to the Lord. Your lives are to be an offering to the Lord. And so he's explaining to them this. So that they don't become offended. So that they don't look at him and say, how ungrateful was that? But rather that they see the heart of the king. And they can appreciate how he's responding. When the promised king would ultimately come into this world, he would be one who would accomplish even greater feats than David. Not only would he be successful, but he would defeat the enemies of God's people in terms of their sin. He would not only cause the nations to respond, but to cause the nations to come into the kingdom. He would have greater success than even David. But the promised king would draw the loyalty of God's people because of the kind of king he is. One who cherished his people above his own comforts. When Jesus came into this world, Jesus came as the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He's willing to sacrifice himself in order to care for his people because... The lives of his people are precious in his sight. And so Jesus, when he comes, you remember Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus claims to have the waters of eternal life, and he will give it to anyone who thirsts. That our eternal comfort would be secure. Jesus was willing to risk and to give up his life to accomplish that salvation. That's what causes people to believe and to follow Christ. You think about in the New Testament, in the first century, one of the uh, things that happened is is there were unbelievers of the Christian movement. They didn't want to acknowledge Jesus as king. They didn't want to acknowledge him as the Messiah. But people were giving their allegiance to Jesus. Jesus. What is it that caused people to give their allegiance to Jesus? Again, you can say, well, God instilled it in them. Yes, but why? What is it that caused people to be drawn to Jesus? It's because of the kind of king he is. In the early church, there were some who were cautioning any persecution against the Christian movement. You remember Gamaliel. He warned those of not interfering with this. He said, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. 
You might even be found to be opposing God. The apostles were preaching that Jesus is king. And Gamaliel was saying, leave them alone. If it's of men, this thing will peter out. If it's of God, you're not going to stop it. But now stop and think, what accounts for people giving their allegiance to Jesus 2,000 years later? It didn't peter out. And it hasn't been limited geographically. Why do people continue to give their allegiance to Jesus, to serve him as their king, to prioritize him first in their life? It's because they see a king who cherished them more than his own comforts. One who came to accomplish God's purpose. One who accomplishes God's design. It isn't by human design, but according to the Lord's purpose. As it says in Psalm 72, he will have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. But also it is Christ's character on display. So in the book of Revelation, it says that the redeemed will say out with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive majesty and honor and power and glory and wisdom and blessing. Worthy to the one who was slain because he cherished our lives to save us from the judgment to come. He defeats the enemy of sin, but he also brings rest from our enemy, from the devil himself, from the guilt of sin, and in him the longings of the heart are fulfilled. We have a list here of people who lived a long time ago. But those lists tell us that these men were honored for serving their king. But these lists also reveal something about the king himself. Why would they serve him? Why would they do all of this for the sake of their king? It's because of what they saw in the king. Do we see something even greater in Christ? That we would be willing to serve him and to give our lives for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about David's servants, uh, David's mighty men, we pray, Lord, that it would be something that uh, encourages us uh, to see uh, how, how you can work in people's lives, how you can cause those who are servants uh, in your kingdom uh, to find great strength and to do what is right in the contexts where they are. We pray, Lord, then, that you would make us people who treasure our king, people who seek to establish the truth, people who live, live in dependence on your spirit, that uh, uh, the, the truth of the gospel might prevail. And we pray that many would come to know of the Lord Jesus uh, themselves through faith. Go before us now in Jesus' name.